This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Jacob Bricka, author of the book, How Documentaries Work, published in 2023 by Oxford University Press. I previously interviewed Jacob for New Books and Film in 2018 for his first book, Documentary Editing, Principles and Practice. In addition to being an associate professor at the University of Arizona, Jacob is also an award-winning documentary editor, director, and producer. In his new book, he reviews the secrets behind documentaries, including feature films, documentary series, and even reality shows. In addition to its value as a source for film classes, the book is a readable overview of documentaries for the fan of the genre. In our talk, we discuss the book in detail and also talk about the documentary field and review various filmmakers and their works. I hope you find Jacob's professional views to be helpful in understanding documentaries. Welcome, Jacob Bricka. Hey, Jacob. Hello. We uh, were talking very briefly before uh, I started recording and was totally shocked to discover that even though you and I have talked before, it's been five years since your first book came out, Documentary Editing Principles and Practice. And I did put a link to that earlier uh, interview in the show notes so that people, if they want to go back and listen to that um, interview with you. But uh, uh, I know they've got a lot of background information from that one, but let's let let's get a little bit started and get some background just so folks uh, who may not have necessarily have heard your name or don't know enough about you and we can actually say that you're a peabody award-winning uh f- f- documentary filmmaker i was reading your website and i always said wow that was after um missing in brooks county documentary which people can see on pbs still um but anyway yeah. uh yeah it's it's that's shocking to me as well <laughs> uh five years past in a pandemic passed right. uh, rather quickly and I'm going to talk a little bit about that since it looks like a lot of your interviews were being done for this book, this new book, uh, which is, of course, called uh, uh, How Documentaries Work. Um, 
were done during that period. I was looking yeah. at the list of interviews, and they're almost all in that general period of March of 2020 and going yeah. a little later. So anyway, what your background is actually started or what, what, where did you start first in education or in actually in, as an editor? I started as a filmmaker, as a documentary filmmaker, um, making short documentaries and working, uh, doing editing for other people's films and a, a bit of a jack of all trades. And then I, uh, kind of specialized into editing. Uh, I went to graduate school for that and uh, found myself working almost exclusively in documentaries. And and then uh, in my late 20s, I had an opportunity to start teaching and that started my, my teaching career. And first at Wesleyan University and now in the last decade at uh, University of Arizona. And so I've been, I've basically been doing both of those things um, in, in, in these last 20 years. So uh, the good thing is, is that your teaching obviously still allows you to do professional editing and directing, producing. That's where uh, if you look at your credits, it's some of them are article are ones that I didn't I've seen. And I said, oh, I didn't know that. And, you know, it just goes to show the amount of documentaries you've been involved with. Um, so obviously your first book, uh, Documentary Editing, Principles and Practice, published by Focal Press in 2018, uh, as the name implies, is meant to more feature the editing process when it comes to documentaries, while your new books, How Documentaries Work, is meant to, as you say uh, in the very beginning, give away a lot of the secrets. Uh, what led you to decide? I mean, I know it sounds like you were asked, you were you were approached from Oxford University Press to do it, but was this something that seemed logical to you right from the beginning to continue on from what you did with the first book? Yeah, I was approached to to I was pitched to write this book. In fact, with the title already intact. <laughs> um, after I gave a, a conference presentation about uh, I was I was talking about the use of pauses in documentary films, and I sort of took this very small little detail, um, you know, seemingly insignificant, but actually rather important detail of how documentaries are put together and and kind of uh, pushed through it to to talk about exactly what kind of meaning and, and effects that those things have. And um, so Norm Hershey at Oxford saw that and he he thought it was really interesting and he thought that there was maybe a book where I sort of do that for dozens of different uh, little tropes and and sections and um, details of documentary. And that sounded very interesting to me. I, and it did let me, um, the other book is, is essentially a, a textbook. Um, it, it does sort of take the reader from beginning to end of the process of documentary editing and uses interviews with, with great documentary editors to kind of give a summation of, of what the, the best practices are, um, and all of the stages and the processes. And this book was, uh, a little bit more of a, a reflective thing. It wasn't trying to teach the reader how to do something um, in terms of how to accomplish the the making of a film or the editing of a film, but rather, in a way, uh, teaching them how to accomplish the the digesting of a film and the understanding when one watches something. A lot of the things that probably went on behind the scenes behind that. Um, so in any documentary, there are zillions of decisions that are made uh, in, in every scene. And those, I think, to most uh, viewers 
it seems relatively transparent what's happening, but there's actually a lot going on behind the scenes that was that sort of made that what it is. So I, I tried to sort of dissect it in various ways. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, like I say, even five years ago, but it's even more so with the number of places for streaming and for content. The amount of documentaries that are out there, um, I don't remember if I mentioned it in the previous interview, doesn't really matter. Uh, I've been watching documentaries since the 80s. I'd have to say the one that pushed me back into watching them a lot was Roger and Me, uh, Michael Moore's Roger and yeah. Me, partly because when it first came out, it really hit the, it, it got publicity far above the average documentary and and so I, I that was one that was interesting to me and then since then I, I have to admit I probably watch more documentaries than feature films partly because it's easy to get to them sometimes there's so many but also yeah. because the more you watch and they're the kind of film that when you re good documentaries are worth re-watching or even bad ones just to see some of these things so when I was reading the book it was so great to see hey wait a minute so that's what that is called, or that's what that means. You sort mm -hmm. of understand it in in your mind, but being able to use the book as a way to sort of get some of the terminology and some of the ideas down was was so great. Um, right. Have you found? I mean, obviously, uh, the other one was meant as a textbook, but I'm going to guess this one's going to have some ability for purposes of people who either teach documentary film as part of uh, a film studies course or other kinds of things. But um, is there, any, have you seen in your career, is there a book, I know it's hard to say this, but is there another book like this or do you think you were able to actually break new ground with it? I think I I I do think this is this is an, an uh, I I think this is really a, a new book. Um, it it does not engage um, at on a it's not really a theory book, so it's not dense in inside of um, of of you know film theory. It is written from a from a practitioner's point of view, but with an academic's um, mindset in a way, where I'm I'm trying to to uh, explain in in relatively, um, you know, relatively transparent terms uh, a, a lot of uh, again sort of what what goes on behind the scenes and how documentaries are structured and all of the things that that happen um, to that point. So I would like to think that this is sort of a, a new approach. Um, it's funny you mentioned Roger and me. I actually sh showed that <clears throat> in a in a class recently, and that film is now you know it's it it came out well before these students were born, um, and and they see it as a they're like oh he's he's trolling he's they've got a whole new language to talk about <laughs> it's actually super familiar to them what 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 Michael Moore is doing in that film and they find it very entertaining but they sort of have a different language to talk about it these days, um, so um, yeah I. I um, I'm I'm sort of forgetting where your where your question was. Headed. Oh well, no, it was just a, you hit it. I mean, it, this is that's why way I looked at it. I said, you're always. I mean, as somebody who's interested so much in documentary and learning more about documentaries, I do a lot of looking around at books and looking for books. And you you know, we get there's a lot of historical studies of documentary, and there are some specific concepts that get studied in books. But I think the idea of a book like this, where you get down into the into the nitty gritty so to speak and um as i say uh, the terminologies you use they're obvious 
once you read the way you explain them, I can, every time, you know, as I would read something, I'd say, oh, yeah, I remember that from this documentary, or yes, I yeah. can remember this. And and just some of the concepts I thought were so interesting. Um, and I think I think to, to now I remember what you were asking to follow up on that. You were saying, you know, how, how might this be used in a class or and I think, um, you know, depending on what what an educator is teaching, I think there are certain chapters that they might just sort of slot into a discussion about something that they're talking about. So, f for instance, the, the chapter on narrative tries to get at how this um, this form, which is. Uh, which which is, you know, called, you know, is is, is nonfiction is how that relates to storytelling because storytelling is something that require you know inevitably requires a reshuffling of information and a um uh sort of putting into standard arcs uh you know the, the way that the way that information is presented and how characters seem to travel through the world and getting at what all the manipulation that is necessary to do this to take things which are sort of inert facts right there there are tons of facts around us all day long um but but in order to put those into a form that seems to make narrative sense to an audience that requires work what kind of work specifically does that require or there's another chapter on what i call presence framing um which is um is is addressed i it's a, it's a term that is that i'm i'm sort of coining but has a lot to do with um what bill nichols talks about he's probably the most influential uh writer in documentary studies per se um he's got a book called introduction to documentary that that is the that is kind of the definitive word on for for any it's it's a book you're likely to encounter in any kind of a of a documentary class and he talks about documentary modes um and this is a a, a close concept it's a it's a close cousin to, to the concept of of some of the stuff that he's talking about with documentary modes but for instance what presence framing talks about is simply that any documentary is going to have a framing that it gives you in terms of what theoretically the relationship is between the filmmaker and the people who are on screen and some films just don't address it at all some documentaries you never hear from the filmmaker it's as if the it's as if even the camera wasn't there nobody addresses the camera it's as if things just sort of played out um you know where it was totally observational right where there whereas there are other films where it the camera is totally acknowledged and in fact sometimes sort of you know part of the game almost and that those are um those are not random choices those are deliberate choices and that that in order for a film to make sense to an audience a filmmaker at some point sort of has to decide which presence framing that they are going to engage with and and sort of live by those rules to some degree and then they're going to have to break them here and there but so that chapter sort of talks about that and that work that has to occur in order for a film that seems to make sense to an audience to to get to you it had to make make these choices yeah it it's it's one of those things where i remember like i say going back to when roger me came out there was a hue and cry at the time about the quote-unquote um you, they call it your students called it trolling but it was the same we didn't have that term back in the 80s but the idea yes. that he had a point of view he didn't care that he was going to present that point of view and for some reason even though documentaries for all all times long time have always had points of view for some reason that particular one hit people hit the public some members of the public and critics differently because for some reason they thought he was doing something new and i know mm -hmm. i'm not taking anything away from the film but but it really 
he just did it a different way and, and his way of doing it just brought out certain complaints and, and commentaries. And nowadays, I would think, that the, as your students pointed out, they watched it and they immediately saw what, what, what he was doing. Well, he's, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he, he's, um, he's playing a character in that film. And that's not to say that that his character isn't authentic. It's simply, but but it is it is showing him playing a character, and and the part you know what they referred to as trolling was these scenes in which, uh, you know, for instance, he's clearly not going to get up, you know, as a stranger just going up to the offices of General Motors and going to get a meeting with the CEO, right? And yet he's there. He is, you know, sort of putting on a, a little bit of an act to to make a point. Uh, right. I mean, he he has a, yeah, I think, a quite legitimate point in doing that. Um, that's sort of the trolling aspect. I think some of the um, uh, he also, you know, I, I, I think you could say that that Michael Moore did have us a, a different, um, you know, a somewhat different approach to the use of archival material, too. He had sort of a more playful approach and not that it was entirely new, but he did have a new spin on it. And that became something that really got. Uh, integrated into into the sort of common lexicon of documentaries as well. Um, and you know we shouldn't uh, ignore the fact that he did make take some pretty pretty heavy liberties with the the um, juxtaposition and arrangement of the scenes. And with some you know there were some <clears throat> um, uh, journalists and, and authors at the time who were able to figure out exactly when certain things did occur and what one was led to believe as an audience member. And I think that those are legitimate critiques of that film. Um, even as that kind of uh, that, that sort of juxtaposition and arrangement has only become more common. And, you know, um, and, and so I think in some ways, my book is a, is a call for the audience to, to, to be aware in every possible way of, ex of exactly how they're being manipulated <laughs> in a, and, and, and again, not to take anything away from the form and not to take anything away really from its claims to truth. Um, but exactly what kind of truth that is, is worth talking about. Well, and then he, he, he's never shied away from that, no matter what they said back at Roger and me, because virtually yeah. every one of his documentaries do the same thing and it's nothing new. And he continues to get critiqued about it, but that's the way he makes them, and that's that's his right as a filmmaker. So, yeah. um, but you're right. Understanding that back in you know in '89 was different from where we are today, where maybe people don't always know all the terminologies. But over time, if you watch enough, and these days you can watch a ton, um, uh, you can start to figure out some of these things. I don't want to call them common sense because that's not completely true, but it's the concept that. It seems obvious sometimes when you watch something, and, and the more people learn about that, I think that the enjoyment or the understanding of documentaries can just how people like to learn how the films are made, regular narrative films, to do that with documentaries is a is an interesting process. Uh, I wanted to ask quickly because as we get as you got started, and I don't want to ask about this because it is related to the book. You um clearly decided not to ignore uh, television documentary and what we what yes. the average person might consider to be reality programming even things as simple as shows like a, on on different cable channels that are meant to show people uh, per performing tasks whether it be <laughs> buying houses or cooking or anything like that so you 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 felt that, that it was important to include those in your 
book as far as examples of documentary uh, creation. Uh, was that something that uh, seemed obvious to you right from the beginning that they should be included? I think it both it it sort of makes 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 an author's job to to take that choice in to in some ways it makes it easier because it gives you more range uh it, it doesn't exclude as many things in some ways it makes it harder because you are you have a bigger canvas you have to um you have to make sense of things but with a lot more variables in a way but i found it useful um i'll give you a very specific for instance um in order to make in order to make um comparisons um so for instance in in the setup of a just talking about the setup um that uh, almost all documentaries and i do uh, in most chapters have this little you know little sections that I talk about more experimental films or things that are sort of on the art cinema end of documentary in which they sometimes don't ascribe to these rules at all but most you know by and large you know most most things that people watch on a daily basis will have a setup um, somewhere very, very soon early in the in the film um, or the show you will basically be told here's here are the stakes here's the problem that that this film seeks to solve and so to make a comparison between a show like Pool Kings, which is on HGTV, which is a very, you know, like they have 101 different variations on the home improvement show. And this one is specifically about renovations of pools, renovations of residential pools. And on this show, um, you get these uh, incredibly detailed um, explanations of exactly what they're going to, you know, what the problem is and what the solution is going to be. Or um, on, you know, uh, on a different uh, food show in the, you know, I make a point uh, where I think it may be Gordon Ramsay, who, I mean, you're, you're not 30 seconds in and you've already been given here's the task. Here's how long you have to achieve it. Here's what you get. If you, if you get there and, and if not, then this is what happens. Right. And it's just all incredibly it's like it's it's so plainly you know laid out and, and because in those sorts of shows the idea is that you you basically have to grab the audience by the collar very quickly because they're they're just going to tune away if 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 they're not sort of given that promise and then as a comparison with feature length documentaries that that promise it tends to there you know the the convention is, is that is that the filmmakers have a little bit more leeway maybe you need to get that done in the first 10 minutes right but you actually have a scene that tends to precede any sort of explanation of stakes that will be sort of an idiosyncratic scene that that may be deliberately out of context but is simply an interesting teaser and yet doesn't doesn't have these sort of promises yet um so <clears throat> that was a way in which sort of giving opposite ends of the spectrum and saying well here's a real an end which is operating within television which operates within these kinds of commercial constraints versus um this other end of the spectrum um and then even further on that spectrum again these films which uh, deliberately uh, kind of ignore standard uh, narrative uh, demands, right? They are they are going to really operate on on a sort of a, a different kind of premise and a different kind of level. So that was part of the reason why I made that choice. Um, also, I think people are the reason why to include that stuff is that most people are, you know, are, I find that a lot of people are pretty omnivorous these days, and there is maybe a little less. Um, uh, you know, people are not quite so ashamed to admit their guilty pleasures <laughs> these days, uh, even though I think they are still considered guilty pleasures, but that it's useful for, for, you know, anyone reading this book to be able to deconstruct that as well. Sure. It may not be an exalted art form, but to think about it in the same critical 
way, I think is really key. And I think students, young people appreciate that because, um, you know, the things are, the distinction between these things because we're in the streaming land is, is more blurry than ever. Like you're just clicking on stuff, right? And so you can be within a streamer and get on a feature doc that, you know, basically has its credentials from the, the you know, the festival world right next to another show, which is, you know, just made by a production company and is one of 23 in that season. And, and, and they're just right next to each other. Right. So our, everybody's daily experience of these things. Um, I mean, I think understanding those distinctions is crucial, but, but that's, that's the reason why to include it. Right. So that you can say, you can say, well, these are actually kind of different forms and yet they do operate on a continuum and there are certain commonalities between them and people making more art oriented documentaries may not want to admit that, but really they're just on a continuum that does include stuff that goes more towards the reality TV spectrum. So well, and and to me, as as somebody who <clears throat> does watch some of those, I mean, they tend to be okay. There's nothing else on TV, so let's throw this on for an hour. You start to get into the habit the more you see them, and depending on which one you're watching, you start to see similarities. But then you also start to, I personally then wanted to find out, okay, well, how did they really do that? You start to find out things like. On a lot of the home documentaries, they actually start with the completed home and then they work backwards or <laughs> it's shown backwards, you know, the way they put them together and you start to learn. And these are there. It's probably a lot less. Uh, I don't know, want to say truthful because that's not a fair word. But you know what I mean? People, mm -hmm. they're not playing fair, so to speak, in that you're given the impression that this is what's going on. Now, food ones, who knows? I mean, it's so funny. And I think the other thing that comes out of it, it also depends on whether it's a half-hour show or an hour show. Hour shows, you know, just like anything, if you don't have a time constraint the same way, you can present it differently, but they still show the... And, of course, nowadays it's become the norm to have multi-episode documentaries and to me, watching those, and I'm interested in you in whether you see this or not, or your ideas, is I sometimes see that that's where we run into some of the timing aspects, where it seems like you're being told a story that that's all that anybody knew at that time. And then in the next episode, you suddenly discover, well, they did know a little bit more, but they, you know, the doc, the documentary filmmaker just didn't tell us in that first episode because he's he or she is setting them up um do you i mean do you agree with me that that's something that that i don't know if it's new but it's certainly now with multi-episodes it's become a much more normal process yeah the 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 multi-episode uh series uh you know docu-series as opposed to simply a documentary it it's you know it it, it um uh, you know, to someone who, to someone like me, where, where I've, you know, I'm 52, I've this, this is a somewhat new thing. You do see the aspect where they are there. It's just sort of padded out. <laughs> um, it does allow the inclusion of, of interesting side things and details. I mean, I think a really great early example of a, of a really strong, you know, true crime multi-part documentary series is the keepers, um, which was a really popular show about a, um, uh, abuse scandal within the church uh, that that becomes uncovered and was really early in, in the it was one of the first popular true crime docs out there and that that show really allowed you know the 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 long I don't know how many episodes I can't remember it was, it was probably six or eight episodes of an hour each it really allowed lots of fascinating um, you know details to come out and I thought was 
was really earned. I think there are other series that you see where you really feel like they're um <laughs> they're they're just you know they're they're just kind of uh stretching um and that that i think does become um uh that that's just a commercial imperative where they're they're they've they've got an obligation to meet in terms of the episodes or i don't know there's a lot of things that can lead to that um and so yeah there are there are are things to discuss with that i mean i think you you talked about sort of revealing secrets and i i think i do like to do that because i did you know i i've been involved with enough editing and i am you know in contact with enough people who work on this that i i think that's that's definitely a part of the book i think down to the details of how archival documents are manipulated in small and and you know possibly justifiable ways but to know that 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 is happening but i think the like i like to think of it as more than just sort of a it's not just a like uh titillating you know we're going to reveal secrets but i try to get into kind of the the way that that matters so for instance um you know i have an extended interview where i that i did and that um i include some um sections of uh, with Dan Partland, who's a veteran documentary producer who's done work both on sort of indie 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 produced documentaries as well as things for CNN. And um, at a certain point in his career, he was working on this show Intervention, which still exists. They're in their 20-something season. Every episode features an addict who is going to be confronted by their family and friends with an intervention to get them to finally go to treatment. It is a very distressing show to watch. Um, and and it is, you know, it, you know, it's it's exploitative in some ways, and yet it is undeniably compelling. And I think you could argue that it's actually maybe has a little more of a claim to to actually to 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 strong ethics than some other shows because of some of the ways that it's uh, because it's actually doing things an intervention is a it is an accepted mode of of you know of of trying to intervene in a uh, an addict's life anyways to get into that you know the the details of that he talks about how their process uh you know he he was working on three or four seasons like over 100 episodes and they they found that um uh they needed to be very careful about their process because they uh by in 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 preparing for showing up to shoot uh you know the person who is an addict as well as their family to comment on what's going on etc they have to do tons and tons of of pre-interviews long 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 phone interviews with with everybody involved and they came to realize that they're interviewing the fact that they're talking with people people are are you know giving you know in great detail what what the history of their lives their relationships with with these people that family dynamics etc that they were essentially performing a, a form of talk therapy that without sort of meaning to or 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 trying to they were you know they were having they were they were um put planting the seeds of of these people coming to realizations you know through this talking and through this interviewing about their own lives and perhaps about the roots of the problem and 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 all of these things which which the show of course wants to capture on camera so they had to modulate the way that they did their schedule so that they would not talk to them too much and have them come to these revelations and sort of have this um you know these these turns these narrative turns as they call them they can't have them happen too soon because then they're not there to, to to record them. So, um, you know, this getting into like, wow, there's actually like, 
um, these this kind of thing where the intervention of the filmmaker actually affects the it affects the outcome um, as as you might understand would be almost obvious if you think about it enough. But in a, in a show a show like this, which requires a certain you know a pretty heavily heavily scheduled and you know very detail oriented production uh, that that they need to kind of shoehorn that those sorts of things into the production schedule so that they can then capture them so that they can then tell the story within the very, very proscribed format. He talks in another section about, um, about the, the very precise, you know, modules that exist in every single episode. And you don't really notice that when you're watching one or two episodes, but if you watch enough of them and you read the book, you're like, wow, yeah, these actually do correspond to a formula before the first commercial break. This is going to happen after that. These two other things are going to happen. The intervention is always going to happen in the fourth segment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So kind of, um, so anyways, those are, that's the level on which I wanted to try to explain sort of behind the scenes stuff, both to just, you know, the, these, um, you know, interesting sort of revealing secrets, but I, I would like to think that it's, it's a little more profound than that. And it has to do with these fundamentals of, of how uh, documentary works. <laughs> well, and, and that this is where documentary film and, and fiction film or whatever we want to call the other type of film, they share the same thing, which is, they're going to they they use a specific language and or formats no matter what you can see any feature film especially if it's in and you're going to see the same things the same concepts and for example the simplest thing and as in a narrative film if somebody early on mentions a specific tool cons idea or knowledge you know at some point later on in the film it's going to come to use it's just a given well documentaries aren't going to necessarily be different with that they're going to occasion you know they will bring up something that will eventually come back whether the filmmakers knew about it at the time they were recorded or if it comes out later it's it they they chose to include it and that's the yep. editing part where what people include what, what a documentarian includes in a film makes all the difference in the world and where learning about documentary to me personally has been one of the things I've found interesting is when I've been able to find background about a particular documentary for example some of Ken Burns full interviews that he did for Civil War are actually available where you can watch the whole interview that he took and and some of the other some other documentarians have put out their full interviews so you get a chance to you know get a better sense just from watching the interviews where there may have been where edits were made and changes were. Uh, so th- that's the kind of thing that I think uh, your book does a good job of sort of giving you a chance, you know, like how does editing and, and other kinds of things done to try to tell the story? Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I also try to get into the details of how these um <clears throat> uh for instance, I, I was uh, this is something that I felt like I had only a a, a dim grasp on when I started um, in terms of how is music used in documentaries. Of course, I've been the editor of many documentaries. I've been the one, you know, using music. I, I There is a lot I know about it, but thinking about it from a sort of a taking a step back, like, well, in, in what kinds of scenes is music, does music tend to be uh, used in, you know, more than others? And so, for instance, you know, it, 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 it does sort of make sense if you think about it, that um, on-camera interviews are more difficult to, you will tend to have less, uh, you know, music will not play it as, as a high, at a higher volume or, 
or um, have quite as much of a of a presence as in uh, reenactments, for instance, um, just because of what the visual information is and how that can be supported or or would be difficult to be supported by various kinds of music. Um, or details about about sound. I go into a detailed uh, comparison between two films that that were both filmed in the civil war in Syria at around the same times in remarkably similar different locations, but remarkably similar circumstances. These underground hospital um, underground hospitals, literally underground uh, in one case, um, and but they're they're very different approaches to sound and how that um, relates to the the conceit of the film to begin with. So in one film. Um, it is told from a more omniscient perspective uh, where the the camera isn't really referred to. And that leads to a, a certain kind of logic in the way that sound is presented versus the other one, which where the, the filmmaker is very much present. You she is a character in the film. We I see, you know, we, we a lot of the we see the camera jostling around. We see her in the shot as she points it up to herself, et cetera. And that the sound, the the conceit of the sound is really different in that film. And we hear the sound much more with more constraints, right? We hear the sound that is really constrained to what could have been captured on the top of her camera, right? Um, and so making that kind of comparison and then seeing, well, it's not just that one is, it might seem that one is a little more authentic, this one that where the sound comes from the camera versus this other one where it's actually being done in post. A lot of these sounds are being created through Foley and extra. And yet there's actually some sort of semi-fictional conceits that even the one that is about, it's called For Sama, where the, in theory, all the sound is coming from the, the on-camera mic. There are, you know, even within those constraints, they're doing things which are, uh, you know, they just support the narrative at various points in time that allow them to modulate the emotions, et cetera. So getting into those kinds of details and examples. Yeah, and I think that's where um, you you mentioned it on a, on the on the issue of sound, but it's also the case with visuals where filmmakers will use what we call B roll film, you know, just general scenes of people walking or you know water or different kinds of things. Trying, and you mentioned it before with something with with another issue with another film where it it sort of gives you the the almost wants to say well this is where these two people walking are the two people who are talking on the on the voiceover right now or this is or not just that kind of thing you see it regularly in any kind of film where they have to include additional video that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the characters like you were uh, you give the example of the Bronx Zoo Tiger right in your introduction about it turns out the picture they used was from um a Getty image from years before, and yet it's led you, it leads you to believe, at least in in theory, that what you're seeing is a picture of the actual tiger that tested positive for coronavirus. Right. That's an example I use, which is actually not from a documentary. It's from a right. it's from that's a newspaper news, article, news story. Right? right. It's an online news story, but I use it to try to to try to explain that in in almost all situations documentary is a um the the it's an amalgam um there are various flows of information that come to to you as as an audience member and it's the it's the um, alchemy of those various flows what it is that you're looking at what you're hearing what you have come to know from a previous scene what might come to you with a title card etc that on a moment to moment second by second basis is there to to 
to generate a certain alchemy and a certain set of meanings in the audience's mind. Um, and so a way to explain that was to talk about this news story where uh, it says Bronx, you know, uh, Bronx Zoo tiger test positive for coronavirus. It was in the early days of the of the pandemic. And there you see an, an image of a tiger when um, it says a Bronx a tiger at the Bronx Zoo. Um, and but if you do a tiny bit of digging and you see what the photo credit is, it's actually a Getty Images uh, photo, which means that it came from a stock stock library. And if you go look that up, you see that it was taken. It's remarkable. It was taken at the Bronx Zoo in the winter. So it's it's uh, it's, you know, like season appropriate because the story came out in the winter and you see snow on the ground. And yet it was taken a little over two years prior to the story coming out. And so there's this actually much more complicated set of uh, facts behind your first impression, which is there's the tiger that, you know, that's one of the ones that tested positive. And in fact, well, that may or may not be true. It's not necessarily untrue. That could be one of the tigers. Um, it says it, it's, you know, uh, in the, that it, that it, is, it refers to it being four years old. Well, is it four years old when the picture was taken? Is it four years old now? And again, there's, and the, the point I make in that part is that there's nothing actually um deceitful in any single one of these elements right the the headline is 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 truthful the second headline underneath it you know the um sort of one with more words that is also truthful the picture is a real picture the photo credit tells you where it came from the byline under the I mean all of it individually are things are facts right and there's nothing and yet it's the it's the impression generated by the amalgam that leads you to believe things which you have to dig into a little bit to see exactly where that impression came from so that is something that is happening pretty much all the time in documentary and it's actually the it's the productive ambiguity of the of the sources of the of of the flows of information that leads to most of the the you know the meaning that is created in any given documentary and so in a way like that is the that's in the introduction and that is the simplest um overview that i could give of all right well most of the chapters here are in one form or another going to break down how that meaning creation happens along all these different lines you know sound i go into archival material i go into the you know theoretically boring but actually quite interesting uh topic of titles little lower third titles that are telling you who people are and you know uh, where they came from um the use of time um something i call flow um, we already talked about presence framing um, and and then also sort of breaking down what are the raw materials that that are the sources of all these pieces of information so that you can think of them as discrete separate uh, elements. Right. And I mean, that's where I the one question that I always have when when I'm looking at a documentary, just like in a feature film, but it's sort of different with a documentary, which is supposed to be based on reality where did it all start? I mean, what was the first thing the filmmaker did when planning out and how has how did things change over time based on interviews? I mean, do, do, does a documentarian start with the interviews? Do they start with uh, uh, basic ideas? Do they do research? I mean, this is where reading a book like yours can be so useful because it can jog ideas as to how there is no one way to create a documentary and every filmmaker has a different format such as and I've seen stories about documentaries that started one way that turned out to be completely different I, I'm thinking of the Armstrong lie which was one of Alex Gibney's on 
on um, Lance Armstrong. He even says it right yeah. in the documentary, how he started to make a documentary about how great Lance Armstrong was until, and then it changes completely once the rest of the Armstrong story comes out. Yeah. And, and, uh, that that conceit of uh, I mean that that's a good example. I, I talked briefly about uh, Alex Gibney films because he has a he sort of has a, a style of his own that uh, where he does tend to put himself in one degree to one degree or another in the films and he tends to narrate them himself and he's narrating as himself, not an omniscient sort of voice of God narrator, but rather I Alex Gibney, the filmmaker. <laughs> And he tends to provide a little bit of context of exactly that, why he wanted to make the film, what the questions were when he started, how his, perhaps how his understanding came to change, et cetera. Um, and that is one very specific, particular way of, of, of framing the information um, where, whereas a, a different filmmaker might just choose a, um, a different frame, a different, a different format almost, and where you might have to come to those revelations in a, in a different way, or they're actually going to be kind of excluded from you. You're, you're not really going to learn anything about, uh, at least from watching the film itself about what, uh, how, how things came to be, um, uh, so yeah, that, I mean that's a great question to ask: <laughs> is is how did this film uh, come about? And it's one that is often asked when you know at film festivals or whatever of filmmakers, uh, and it's something that filmmakers tend to like to answer because you get to sort of you get to finally explain some of the backstory um, about how this thing came to be. Yeah, because uh, of course another person who's the tends to narrate his own is of course Michael Moore, <laughs> and, and it's not exactly the same way because a lot of Gibney's in. Uh, you're right. I mean, he's hasn't done all of his films. Obviously, Peter Coyote did Enron, the the, the smartest guys in the right. room. But yeah. you're right. In more recent, including the TV series that he did. For Netflix, the two seasons, I don't know if that's it, just two seasons or there's going to be more. But anyway, that there's been, you know, he does do that where he's become now his own narrator to a large extent. Mm -hmm. I, want to, I want to talk a little bit about the films, so, two examples that actually shows the, the lack of narration, films without narration, and those that depend on archival footage. Um, the one I want to mention specifically, and yes, it's one of my other favorites, is the Atomic Cafe, which uh -huh. is nothing but archival footage. And yet, there's still a narrative, there's still a story. It's a largely chronological narrative, but there's an example to me of a great documentary that doesn't have a single voice other or you know and there is music in it though although the music is all reasonably straightforward but it's just one that's an example to me of a great documentary that does not at first glance it looks like all they did was put a bunch of uh old newsreels and footage together yeah yeah i i don't believe i cover that film in in the book but it, it is it's on your list that's why I... yeah 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 I, I don't cover it in detail but it is it's a terrific example of exactly what you're talking about um and there's a there's a more recent film called um mike wallace is here uh which is about it's also an all, all archival film it's a it's about mike wallace the the 60 minutes um uh, reporter uh, for for many many years in his uh, his very colorful career, that film is fascinating because he's a 
he is an interesting and sometimes prickly character and all that, you know, they, they've just got archival interviews of him. So uh, they, that's what they've got to work with. Um, And, and so they don't get to formulate their own questions. They're limited to what people have tended to ask him in the past. And the fact that he was, he was a relatively private person who, I mean, he was kind of volatile and and voluble on camera, but in terms of his private life, he, he never really revealed very much and he was sort of loath to talk about it. And yet they do these really interesting um, juxtapositions in the film where you get all of this, this sort of psychological insight into him as a person and his motivations just by how they insinuate things. And they kind of, they kind of insinuate in many scenes that there is sort of a, there's another layer of meaning. There's a subtext to what he's talking about. And so it's not about the words that he's saying in an interview. It's about the things that he's not saying. And, and you get these very actually quite clear insinuations uh, about his, uh, you know, sort of his inner psychological life, just from the way that these things are arranged and and presented, that I thought was was quite masterful. Of course, it's a point of view, right? This is someone how what someone from the outside has, based on their extensive research, the conclusions that they have come to. Um, it's one point of view. It it uh, you know, I mean, his. I would be curious to know what his family members, you know, thought of that film, for instance. But that's a that's a great example of how juxtaposition um, and and actually certain, you know, those films like that, I think tend to benefit from the constraints that they either uh, impose on themselves or that are imposed on them for one reason or another, where it, you know, uh, having something play out like that with a limited number of these elements leads to, in the best case scenario, at least really, really interesting um, experiences for the audience uh, because they're, they're having to get very creative within a smaller space, you know. But, and then the other one I wanted to mention, and this is one that I didn't even know of the story until I actually watched the documentary, and I purposely didn't reach out to try to find what was going on. It was a, It's a series. It's called The, the Staircase, mm-hmm. uh, which yeah. is, was on Netflix. I don't know if it still is, but it's 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 a it's an incredibly fascinating documentary about a of about the death of someone and whether it was a murder, and it literally is done as it's happening. I mean, the the, the yes. filmmakers had what seemed to be total uh access at least yeah. to to the to the person who ends up being accused yeah. and is actually in multiple parts in the sense that it comes to an ending and then continues when there's a change later on yeah. so even though it came out in 2018 it was something that took a long time to put together and i think staircases it it, it, it i found it to be fascinating just as the story, but also as a documentary, because there's no narration. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of titles, but it's just one of those things that you learn the story as it goes, just pretty much the same time as everybody that it's happening to. Yeah, and that's a film that went in in re- reverse of how some of these go because they. I don't remember what the fictional version of it was, but there was a there was a scripted uh, a recent scripted right. show that was made based on on. Right, HBO. HBO did the did the series, but I think the documentary came first. But you're right; it, it was just yeah. it was yeah. just. It, I found it to be it, just so fascinating as a documentary. Yeah, yeah, and it was done in two parts. There was a it was a French documentary filmmaker who made the first series, and then when Netflix got involved, they presented the original, uh, however many episodes. Plus, they did I think five more. 
uh, they they continued the story on. And yes, that was a case of clearly the the Michael Peterson, who was the accused, as well as his family, decided to 100 uh, percent allow the filmmakers to be there for all their discussions about it, for all their, you know, um, you have it, it does feel like there is is quite total access Um and yes, you, you you see the this bombshell play out within their family um, over the course of a period of time. Um, that is a it's it, it is a fascinating film. The the more recent episodes, I I thought was it was a bit of a case of of padding. Um, the there there were there were um, there were shows where um, that felt like they were a lot longer than they needed to be. Uh, but especially that first the the first set of original episodes was was totally fascinating. Yeah, it's it's it, you're you're right. You can usually tell that part, kind of thing. I mean, it, it's just like I say, the the as a documentary, these are the kind of films. And I hope I got it right that there was no narration. I'm pretty sure there isn't, but I, I think you're right. Yeah, I I do know that they used a lot of, of of titles and things to try to explain what was going on at times, and and that was good. But uh, even just the background, there is bits and pieces of the background of how the film crew got involved in the first place. So it was just uh, yeah. that's included. But so I know we've just been talking about various ones. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, obviously, when you put the book together, you did it with interviews and you list who you actually interviewed. And as we mentioned early on, it looked like uh, almost all the interviews were done you said via Zoom, and it was right there at, at the beginnings and in the middle of COVID. Um, where did you decide? I mean, it seems to me these are people who you felt were obvious people to interview, or was there anybody in particular that you felt you were really particularly glad to speak to or that helped you with, with putting this all together, or did they all have their obvious purposes? So it, it's kind of a different people were interviewed for different reasons. Some of them were because I thought that, that a film that they had worked on in some uh, direct capacity I wanted to talk about. And therefore I wanted to know as much detail as possible about um, about the background of it and how they thought of what they were doing, et cetera. Um, in some cases, it was just people who I've, you know, Steve James, for instance, um, you know, a long, the Chicago filmmaker, um, uh, who was first made famous by his his series uh, Hoop Dreams, and then has gone on to make lots and lots of other films and series. Um, he was someone where, and I use him primarily to talk about the choices of of sort of observational filmmaking versus filmmaking in which you overtly engage with the with the participants on camera. Um, in you know, in that case, uh, the again, the I he's quoted in two or three different places, but the one that I'm thinking of right now, he makes a really interesting point about because I personally, as a filmmaker, am I'm, I've always been attracted to sort of observational films that 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 kind of are, are very uh, seemingly restrained and where you don't feel the presence of the filmmaker. But he made a great point, which is that that by doing that, you kind of take out the ability of showing the audience that the participants, the people who are the the you know characters so-called in the film, they really often have a great capacity for self-reflection and for 
for explaining and understanding their own circumstances in really um, detailed and and uh, observant and complex ways um, that you you really uh, exclude if all you do is you if you never ask them any questions right if you just show them interacting with each other and if the only time they're going to reflect on that is if it comes up you know separate from the the production um, and that that he uh, I think is someone who has been really successful at showing the really the the deep intelligence uh uh and and nuance of uh of his subjects slash participants and and um so anyways that that was the reason why he was uh involved and then you know some other people are just folks that i know and that i knew that they because of my past relationship with them that they would feel comfortable talking with me about about just what they do and such um uh, so Helen Kearns, for instance, is a documentary editor. Um, she worked, if I, if memory serves, on um, on that show, uh, The Keepers, that I I mentioned earlier. Um, but she also talked. She's quoted talking about archival documents and, uh, for instance, like a legal document that you might see in a uh, in a film. And she doesn't mention which one it was, but that it actually was altered and the facts are not altered, right? They're not making you believe something that didn't, that wasn't true. And yet the arrangement of the, of the, of the elements on screen, like were slightly rearranged so that you could get an instant recognition of exactly what that document meant. So there's another great example of you, you're seeing one thing and you may be thinking that, that you've, okay, there it was, there is the flat fact of the document. And in fact, it's a slightly altered version of the flat fact of the document. And it's it's been altered in ways that are, I think, justifiable um, from a storytelling point of view, because there are demands to have an audience in most kinds of films to make a, a relatively quick and instant recognition of meaning, right? You, you're shown an image and it's on the screen for maybe five or six seconds or maybe less. And it, it is there to prove a particular point or to make a particular point. And then the film is gonna go on to the next and you you know if you're going to show the original document there's too much information in it right you can't instantly recognize what the point the part that they want to point out is and so you can sometimes do this by blurring certain areas but sometimes the filmmakers feel the need to slightly rearrange things there and again their justification is that we're just helping the audience get to the meaning that was already there and they haven't changed anything from a you know, all the 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 impression that you're going to be left with is is true to the document, and yet you couldn't have gotten there in that small amount of time. So she was someone who I talked to for that reason. I did talk to a, a fair number of music composers, again because, as I said earlier, that was something where I felt that I had a lot to learn, and I wanted to hear about how people who work in documentary. The the question that 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 occupied me there was what is it what is it, how is it different working in documentary from working in scripted fiction films? How does that as a as a as a composer, as a music composer, how how do you approach it differently? Do you approach it differently? And the um you know one of the insights was that that yes people feel like there's there's not as much um room to be quite as bombastic basically um that you because you're tethered to reality theoretically you are gonna kind of use a softer more feathery touch <laughs> you're gonna you're not gonna have uh and that is true also with a with a, a sound designer I talked to who who compared the work that he's done on scripted films versus documentaries you're doing foley in both of them, meaning that you're adding footsteps, you're you're actually adding sounds so that so that the images can have more uh, resonance, but you're doing it in a way that 
basically draws less attention to itself. In a way, it's like a little more tricky. It's a little more, it's more subtle, perhaps. Um, and in some cases, it's it's incredibly subtle where they're 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 recording sound in intentionally kind of quote unquote bad ways, where they're they're intentionally doing foley that sound that that in a in a regular film would sound bad, but it needs to fit the 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 stylistic uh parameters of the film, which in a documentary is often kind of rough and and a little, you know, like like they're you know, things don't play out perfectly. So it's got a rough, you know, exterior for some of the sound design. So if you were to put in a super clean sound within that, it would sound really weird. It would draw attention to itself. So you have to actually sort of dirty it up and get it to fit. Um, and and yet it still is, you know, if you come down to it as performing the same function of kind of directing your attention in a scene of making making your connection to a character, to a participant, feel more direct and more, more quote unquote real, um, to have more emotional connection um so these are some examples of, of people i talked to and and i got there really it's it's uh, for many different reasons uh for for why i interviewed the, the folks that i did well and we haven't even we haven't even gotten to talking about we're not going to because we're running out of time but the whole idea of reenacting reenactments in documentaries how when thin blue line came out how it was probably the biggest criticism of that film and yet as you've pointed out and you point out is that it it's become more and more normal now the question is exactly how involved the reenacting is is it just something trying to create a point or whatever but uh overall it's just no question that that is the book does go into detail about that which i think is important because um those are the kind of issues that we as the viewer needs to consider is that the whole point of view thing and what is what is the meaning behind what a documentarian is trying to do yeah and that's something that i would in a in a, in a future um the book or or some sort of i would love to get further into that i i really love what what i was able to put in there but i think there's a lot more territory to explore there to really talk with people who who specialize in reenactment for instance and who think about it on a uh on a really detailed level i would love to to hear more about uh what how how people think about that <laughs> well and it, it sounds to me at least from what you're saying in the book is that documentaries are doing quite well as a as a as a genre of film and it's great that uh we have the ability these days to see so many of these and i was looking at your list of the ones you cited and i know not all of them were cited for purposes of you weren't trying to say this one's particularly bad or good or anything in fact some of them are regular narrative films but still it's a good list and i looking at it just if yeah. you look at the list of shows cited in film how many of them i've seen and i'm saying oh good i'm glad i you know it, it's helpful but well, you're then, a, you're a very uh, you're an excellent documentary viewer. Then, <laughs> well, and the names too. Picking out the names of some of the people who directed or edited, and those are the kind of things that I find because that's the way it is with any film. You you find a film that ha featured a certain person who was written by somebody, or directed by somebody, and the next thing you know, you want to see more of that person's. And so, the same way going on with documentaries. Well, um, anyway, like I say, I hope people reach out and see the film or read the the book get it those of you who teach i think you're going to want to have this as a book because i mean it's it's not a huge book it's you know it's it's but it's 
concise. It's got lots of photos and images to make your points. So it's not just all text, which is great. So yeah, it's 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 a it's about two hundred pages in a in a in a pretty slim volume, and that was what um, what Oxford. Uh, that was their, in fact, they actually, their initial brief to me was to actually make it uh, a, only about half the length that it currently is. They wanted something or maybe two thirds. And then once I started writing, they said, oh no, I think this needs to, you know, you've got, there's too much good stuff going on here. You need to make it a little longer, but it's still uh, the format that they chose is I think an approachable one. <laughs> it doesn't feel, it feels like you could pick it up and, and, and get through it without, uh, without it feeling like uh, an impossible task or, or a burden. And they also decided to price it at a pretty, you know, it's, it, they priced it at under 20 bucks. So um, that's, that's, I think it's making it also more accessible. So thank you for your time. I know that uh, the thank book, you, Joel. You've, you, the book's been out since March. Or at least so it's you you had its first periods but we i'm glad we were able to to talk finally we got delayed a few times and it's a great book it's a great introduction for anybody that wants to learn more about documentaries and their importance and it's also useful for those of us who may have been watching documentaries for a long long time so uh it's great that it's coming from somebody who not only teaches documentary but also uh works in the field so to speak mostly is as that's your main work has been in documentaries so i think that that gives it a extra uh usefulness well thank you so much i really appreciate your interest and and the opportunity to to, to come chat about it okay thanks for uh, your time okay